I'm Claire Edwards, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership, a series of conversations, insights, and inspirations with leaders who are real, raw, and authentic. Today, I'm thrilled to be bringing you a conversation about inclusive leadership that I had with Joanne Lockwood, founder of Sea Change Happen. How do we build a culture of inclusion throughout our organisations? How do we unconsciously exclude? And how can we start to make the unseen seen? In the spirit of authenticity, I'll share that, yes, we did have some audio issues. And if you listen to the end, you'll find out why I didn't ask Joanne to record over. So please aim to overlook these issues as the golden nuggets of learning that Joanne shares that you can implement immediately to build a more inclusive culture are truly invaluable. Our conversation begins with Joanne sharing her not-so-inclusive leadership style from the past and what brought her to learn so much from experiencing exclusion on a grand scale. Enjoy. I first met Joanne Lockwood at a chapter meeting of the Professional Speaking Association and at that time I was on meet and greet duty. We got chatting briefly on the topic of inclusion And when I sat down for the evening and listened to all the presenters, I became acutely aware of some of the language that we use that potentially can exclude, even such a simple thing as, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. So afterwards, when we were chatting in the break, I said to Jo, well, what could we say differently? And her response was, good evening, everyone. Duh. Uh, You know, that simple change really stuck with me. And you can probably guess that my theme for the podcast today is the inclusive leader. After a career in the Royal Air Force and IT, Joanne founded Sea Change Happen, a diversity and inclusion practice focusing on LGBT plus and transgender support to organizations and leaders, breaking down misunderstandings and the fear of getting it wrong. I am so keen to be in conversation with Joanne today to explore the role of inclusion in leadership, where Jo thinks we currently are, and steps we can take as leaders to grow more inclusive cultures and organisations. Joanne, welcome to Authentic Leadership. Oh, good evening, Claire, all the way from the UK on the election night here in the UK. So it's a really interesting day for us over here, and it's fantastic. I remember that first meeting we had at PSA in Reading, probably 18 months ago. Yeah, I remember that very, very vividly. Wow, yes, it is a, a, an auspicious occasion today. Joe, before we go into the work that you do with Sea Change Happen, I'd like to hear maybe a little bit more about your own experience as a leader in the past and, and what inclusive leadership meant for you then. Yeah, certainly. I, as you're, you're aware, I, I've lived two lives. Um, the first 40 odd years of my life, I was assigned male at birth, I ran an IT company. I employed people. I grew my business to a peak of about 20 people. Uh, I also did some other things. I was uh, national president of the round table at men's clubs. So I ran committees and meetings and used to hang around in a very male environment. And lastly, I, I gender transitioned about three, four years ago. And so I, I have two distinct elements of my life. And when I look back to my male life, I can reflect on when I ran the business, uh, I didn't have any special training or, or, or tools in my toolbox to be a leader as such. And 
Yeah, I, I know I got it wrong a lot of the time, and uh, I, I've I've actually had recollection of incidents over my my career where people in front of me have, have cried, and I wouldn't say it's because of me bullying them or, or creating that sort of that sort of environment of stress or anxiety, but I think I was just I didn't listen to people. I kind of had my own opinions, and I probably had no empathy for what they felt. And I was also very pushy and demanding about getting the job done. IT is kind of like a very binary. It works, it doesn't work. I had customers to uh, service. And so I, I did put a lot of pressure on people to, you know, I, I saw it as for customer service. But I didn't probably reflect enough on how the people enjoyed their role, enjoyed their job, whether they, whether they wanted to come to work, whether they liked me or, or valued me as a leader, or whether it was just a necessary coming in for the paycheck. And I think... As part of my my, yeah, my change of life, uh, I, I sold my business. I came out to the world. I announced who I was to my family, my friends, uh, to my workplace. And then I tried to set up a new business. So kind of all those kind of things, three things at once. I often describe it as uh, putting my life in a blender and pushing the button, the lid comes off and it's sort of stealing on the wall. You're trying to scrape it back and rebuild. Um, something I had, I think. Part of that process, because I was very conscious about how I created pain in others. I was conscious of my pain. I wanted acceptance. I wanted people to to love me, valid me, and respect me. So I've been very hyper aware of my footprint, my place in the world. Uh, Self reflected a lot. I was very introspect about who I was, and I kind of took accountability and responsibility for me being the best person to be to help people accept who I was. So I think I spent all those years with privilege where I was able to just be me, not care about anybody else. And now I was in this vulnerable position where I needed people around me to support me and help me. And I, and I, and I think that very act of losing privilege caused me to reflect, also maybe understand the privilege I had before and how I maybe wielded it in a, in a way that wasn't I wasn't proud of. And I certainly remember reflecting in the old days or the old life where I, I felt like I was the, the, the female me inside was remote controlling this body and the conversations I was having were going wrong. I, I wasn't proud of them at the time. I reflected after thinking, that isn't what I meant. How did that happen? And I think as part of the, the transition to reflecting, I kind of started to understand where I was going wrong or where I could improve or how I, how I saw myself could be changed. And I, I wouldn't say I look back with any being ashamed or disappointed myself but I can certainly see how I created a, a version of me that I probably don't like I didn't you know, looking back on it wow I'm just uh, thank you and thank you for your for your, your honesty and your authenticity in that I'm thinking the the whole process of transitioning must be um scary and uh, and takes courage but it sounds like there's been a gift in the challenge revealed in terms of your outlook on life and and inclusion so yeah it's a there's an interesting it's either an irony or a, a coincidence i'm not sure which i think it's common amongst people who've had a major life change or disruption to their their timeline you know whether you've been involved in an accident mm. you've survived a um a, an illness or scare uh, a, a close friend or family is maybe been through a trauma or passed away and maybe as you get into your 40s and 50s you start to think about life differently and, and sometimes this, this life mm. event 
causes you to, to question who you are and who you want to be and who you should be. And I think, to me, that's probably all that other people do. You know, you, you must know people who have, have survived maybe a serious illness or like a cancer or something, and they come out of it as a different person. And I think I've done that same thing through my gender transition. I've created my own life trauma, and it, it's allowed me to, to stop, step back, and work out my footprint. How much space am I taking up? And I don't want to be seen as a grumpy old ass anymore. I don't want to be a grumpy old ass. I want to be happy, smiley, engaging, pleasant, brilliant Joe, not not grumpy ass Joe. You know, I want to, I want that's, that's not me. I, I, I have a, I have a higher standard of who I am now. Well, and that's why I was laughing before when you said when you said a grumpy gift because I've only only ever known you as enchanting, engaging, happy, smiley. So. Uh... Yeah, it would have been interesting to to meet the other you. <laughs> well, as I say, one of, the, one of the challenges I have, or I have in this transition, is people who've known me in both lives. So my wife, my children, my, my, my oldest friends. So they obviously know, yeah, you know, the grumpy git. And they're, they're kind of scratching their heads looking at me going, well, where's the grumpy <laughs> git gone? You know, this there's this engaging, you know, I dare say charming, whatever you, whichever adjective you want to use, um, woman who is not like the old person. And I think when I was going through the early stages, I, I guess I had to be, well, I'm still the same person on the inside. And uh, one of my friends came up to me and said, look, stop saying that. It's a load of tosh. You're not the same person on the inside. You're a completely different person in the way you look yeah. at life, the way you talk, yeah. the way you engage, the way you educate, the way you challenge thinking, the way you stand up for injustice and promote inclusion. Yeah, your values, my values are changed completely. So yes, whilst I still have the same mm. core subroutines inside me and the same hardware, um, I, I, I've, I've definitely had an upgrade. I'm version, version two now. <laughs> <laughs> so you, the IT person, you, you're 2.0. Uh, me, the, um, I don't know, the opposite. I'm thinking about a metamorphosis. <laughs> I mean, so sometimes it's, it's common like, uh, it's like a, I, I, I did the software upgrade, but without on the old hardware sort of thing. It's kind of like that sort of. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you were talking before, you said about the the need to belong. And I, and I picked up on something on your LinkedIn profile that you describe yourself as an inclusion and belonging specialist, which I absolutely love. And I'm I'm keen to find out more about what what do you see as either the role of inclusion and belonging or what the difference is and you know what what does belonging mean to you and and why is it so important in your business to help people develop a culture of belonging yeah sure i i mean i, I like to sort of when i talk to people about this i like to sort of think about how we started maybe 20 or 30 years ago we started talking about equality and equity, and then we started from there. We started talking about diversity and recognising different sorts of people, and then we sort of evolved our, our language and we started talking about inclusion. Inclusion was the next great thing. Then we started talking about belonging, and now we started talking about culture, employer branding, values, vision, a, a brand, how how our product, how our company is seen in the world. What do we mean to our customers? What do we mean to our employees? What do we mean to our, our stakeholders? And in order to get the brand right, you have to align everything to your vision and values. And I think if you like, companies need to start thinking about their vision, their values, and who they stand for, and trying to align that in their brand. And then you can start thinking about belonging. And belonging for me is where people 
start to feel they have a voice. They start to feel they're valued by an organization. They start to feel they can thrive. They start to feel engaged. So that's more than just inclusion. It's inclusion for me is like the, the step after this, where once you have the sense of belonging, yeah. then you can start including people of, of different um, opinions, different lived experiences, not just around silos of diversity. So I'm not talking about necessarily women, men, gender, identity, or, or LGBT, sexuality. All that. I'm not talking about those silos. I'm just talking about we can treat everybody in a way that meets their needs to thrive. And I always describe inclusion as about thriving. And I, I describe, you know, there's lots of definitions of inclusion out there, and you can get the, all the dictionaries and, and the Google definition of inclusion. But the way I define it is how you make people feel. So it's a, inclusion for me is a feeling. I feel included, and that's, that's the heart of it. And I mm. feel belonging. I feel aligned with the objects and, and the, the yeah. vision of the company. I feel I can succeed. I feel I can thrive. And if I feel like the, the other side of that is how I'm treated. If I'm treated in a way that makes me feel great, I'm going to survive and I'm going to thrive. And you hear this saying, you know, treat people as, as I want to be treated, but actually I should treat people as they want to be treated. It means I then start to respect their identity, their lived experience, their communication needs their superpowers absolutely, um, and recognize that not everybody wants to communicate or is motivated or driven by the same things. Gosh, I just um, had a bit, a little bit of an epiphany moment there where you, you can say I am included and you can say, I feel included and they're totally different. Yeah. And I, I talk about um, the old mantra of my door's always open. You know, how often we heard managers say that, my door's always open. And for me, that's not inclusion. That's not belonging. That is a drive-by. You know, if, you, if you're driving by, you can come and come in the office. And how many people do? That's, inclusion needs to be active and deliberate. And, and I say, well, think about the best managers, the best leaders you know. They come and take time out of their day to sit with you and say, how are you doing? Is everything Okay. How's, it, how's, how's, how's your day going? Is there, anything, is there anything I can do to make your life easier, to make your job better? Let's have a chat. Those are the great leaders where they actually care about your opinion. And this, this is about where you have the voice, where you feel like you have a contribution to the overall mission of the organization, where you understand your part in delivering the whole. That's when you start to, to really engage and be empowered. And the best leaders take time to understand each person as an individual, how they like to be motivated, how they like to be communicated with, and actually care about them at a personal level. And, you know, I can hear people shouting in the background, you can't do that to everybody. Well, no, you can't do that to everybody, but you need to care enough about individuals because people know when you're just being fake or inauthentic, and you're just you're just sort of sitting down because it's your turn to walk the office. So you, you've got to do it some sort of, real with authenticity and if you're the ceo if you're a senior management and you don't have contact with people day to day think of a way you can do that and it, whether you have an ask me anything email address whether you have a uh, a webcast on a friday where people feel they can touch you and talk to you mm-hmm. or as i say just take some time out of your day and just have a chat with random people uh, it doesn't have to be everybody but just random people each day 
you know, I think I think that's so important. There's a lot of things coming up. Um, you know, I think you're familiar with um, the Gallup survey that was done. It was like 250,000 employees and 80,000 managers over 25 years, and they came up with these 12 questions that, you know, if people can can tick, I strongly agree to these statements that they have a high performing organization. Yeah. And, and one of those questions was that you know it's at work there's somebody who cares about me. And just thinking back to the traits you were talking about with the leaders, and you you actually answered the next question that I was going to ask around around authenticity because you know when a leader is fully present with you you know when they're actively listening to mm. you when they ask you that question about how you're going they're actually interested in the answer so for leaders who well let's take let's take the old joe so new joe is coaching old joe you know is is old joe coachable i think people would say about me it's probably a better way of saying it people would say that I don't like to be told. I didn't like to be told. I didn't value collaboration. I didn't value outside opinions. I, I'm not saying I was, a, I was a know-it-all, but I was fairly self-assured. And I probably put a lot of thought into what I wanted to do and then communicated the end result, my decision, my thought, rather than saying, this is, this is what we're trying to achieve, everyone. Anybody got any ideas? without giving my opinion first. Often, often yeah. you know, you, a strong leader will give their opinion and then everyone feels they've got to agree with it almost. So a great a great way of asking people's opinion is don't give anything away of what you think. So start with, this is what the company is trying to achieve. Has anybody got any thoughts? And then full stop and then let people talk. And then as a leader, only summarize and bring it together at the end once you let everybody have a say. And I was probably the opposite where I'd say, this is what we're trying to achieve, and this is why I think we should do it. Is that okay, everybody? And everyone just said to go, yeah, I suppose so. That's what you decided. Whereas now, because I, yeah, yeah, but I, I spent a long time in IT, and I, I people called me an expert. You know, I was quite, I was quite, I was extremely competent in what I did. And I think when I've, I've changed career, I've done a complete U-turn. I've gone from being an IT professional to an inclusion and belonging specialist which is kind of more an HR people function. And I don't have 25 years experience of doing that. In fact, I've got 25 years experience of probably doing it badly. So I've had to collaborate. I've had to learn. I've had to listen to people. I've had to go into environments where I don't know everything. And I've had to, and I've had to ask people to either share some knowledge or ask their opinion or verify what I'm thinking. So I, I suppose by the very nature of the fact that I no longer consider myself an expert, my imposter syndrome, my limiting beliefs are kicking in, and I feel I need somebody's validation to pat on the back. So that that's probably caused me to uh, to be less yeah. self-assured, more collaborative, uh, softer, and and more inclusive. And these are you know these are the traits I think that so many people are looking for in in a twenty first century leader that that courageous vulnerability, that ability to say. This is a complex problem that we need to solve, and I don't have all the answers, but collectively, we'll probably arrive at a brilliant solution. Yeah, it's this we we promote good people um, into leadership roles who are maybe great technically, or great procedurally, or great, they're a great accountant, they're a great IT person, they're a great engineer, 
but that doesn't necessarily make them a great leader. And we we often don't give people the tools, the training, the L and D, the uh, the investment in them as a, as a leader. And it's no wonder people get it wrong. It's no wonder that uh, people fail yeah. because their their manager, their leader, is not leading them in a way that allows them to grow. Because you look at the hierarchy. Yeah. Everybody in that hierarchy is a leader without training, because if you're personally report to as a great leader, then they will educate you and empower you and 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 and, and be your mentor, so you can, can become a great leader. If you're working for somebody who's a, a bit of an ass, then uh, that's that's your style that you're going to learn, isn't it? Yeah, the, the the culture begets culture, absolutely. Yeah, the survey you mentioned, uh, I think one of the other things you, you said was, which has kind of been dropped recently, is about having your best friend at work i remember, I remember that uh, was one of the things that, that they kind of people started dropping about having your best friend at work i think well i still think that's important it may be not up there at the top uh, from a from a company point of view but from a personal point of view i want to go in into work tomorrow and sit with people i like i work with we're friends we will socialize we share stories because yeah, we're humans. We like having our stories. We like telling about what we did last night, what we're doing tonight, what we're doing with our family. We want to share our highs, our lows, with the people we trust. And we get this, again, this sense of belonging by, by this human interaction. All right? If you have a friend at work, you're more likely to value your, your role. If you have nobody at work that you're really friends with, then if you're feeling vulnerable to leaving or you know, feeling a bit disgruntled one day, having no friends is, is going to say, well, I've got nothing. I've got no one here that cares about me. I might as well leave. But if you've got friends, you know, you think, I'm going to be really wrenched. Where you go, well, if I leave, I'm going to leave all these great people behind. I know I make new friends, but I love these people. And you might just pause your, your counter offer and say, okay, I want to stay, you know, it's rather than leave. And I think having friends is, is a great way of, employers um, promoting that is, is a great way of employers making sure that, that, that their staff love working there as well. Yeah, and you're absolutely right because it, it's not rocket science, is it? That if I if I feel I belong, if if I'm with my tribe at work and I and I'm connected, yeah. then I'm going to be engaged and I'm going to be productive. I mean, you're not just going to be there and and having a ball all the time and not actually do your work but that sense of belonging will lead to being good at your job and being productive and you know just thinking back that I've been very blessed in this I spent the first 10 years of my career in hospitality so in in reception and front of house and when I was living back in the UK a couple of years ago our team had its 37th anniversary reunion and the same with the first IT company that I worked with and that was because our leaders brought us together as a tribe and we felt that belonging so on that thread Joe for leaders in business who genuinely authentically want to further develop a culture of inclusion and belonging and I'm thinking more maybe about people development or stakeholder engagement rather than recruitment, because I think there is some progress being made there. What, what are some of the things that you help leaders with to foster that that inclusion and belonging? Um, I think I think the points I was talking about earlier, which is about communication, motivation, understanding different sorts of people as individuals and not treating them as uh, as 
as, as human computers or something. And it's I think recognizing that people are motivated differently. People are, people communicate differently. We, we live in a world where we we communicate through so many different channels: online, offline, texting, Snapchat, email, Zoom, Slack. We've we've got so many systems out there we communicate through, and not everybody has the same learning style, the same communication style. And we, we need to recognize that as a leader that if I'm not communicating in a way you can understand that I have to take responsibility for that. I need to adjust my communication mechanism as a leader to talk in a way that you as a person who is is maybe following me, a a team member can understand. And if I, if they say, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Can you please explain? That's now my responsibility because all too often people just go, okay, whatever, shrug your shoulders. What, what, What do they say? I don't know. So you have to take, you have to take responsibility for the communication. And recognize that when we communicate on emails, on texts, wherever we are, we can't see the other person. So we need to make sure that what we're saying is clear. We can't use sarcasm. We can't use banter in it. We, we, we have no emotion in an email. How you write it and, and your inner voice when you, when you write it is not the inner voice that comes out when the person reads it. And we've also got to remember that the person, when they read yeah. it, yeah. what they're doing at the time, you may have interrupted them. They may have been you know, sitting on the toilet with their phone reading their email. They might have been sitting in traffic. They might have just been an argument at home. They might have been uh, watching some telly. So their whole mental state is unpredictable about how when they open and read that communication. So when we're texting people in the evening, we're texting people outside of work or emailing people at work, we have to understand that the context in which you communicate may not be the context in which it was received and understood. So our intent is one thing and then the impact so it's, it's about in, intent and, and to, all too often people say no no it's all about the intent well actually no it's not when we're talking about bullying we're talking about victimization we're talking about harassment we're talking about um sexual innuendos all these sort of kind of things it's it's what it's not what you intended you intended to be funny but it wasn't and the person who defines is the person who has the impact is the victim or the person that is is the target of that communication decides whether it's offensive or not and i think that's what people forget when they have privilege you think well through my privileged lens of maleness or or, or whiteness or, or or straightness you kind of have this view of view of the world and assume that everybody else sees it as you do which is why it's important to strip your privilege back and walk in their shoes to understand how that impact would affect them. And it's not just a case of saying, oh, grow up, you know, don't be a snowflake, get over it. And if you're direct, sometimes they haven't understood why you, your, your perspective on, or, on why that was the way you, the way you said something. I said the other side of that is motivation, where we all get motivated by different things. You know, if you look at uh, the current studies, you know, what the thing that people value the most these days for an employer is flexibility. And that's not that's not that's not working from home. That's the ability to be flexible within your day. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean part time work, but it means to have some level of control over your daily life, which allows you to to plan your own work to a certain extent. And it's not just about money. It's not just about status. It's about having your voice and motivating people. It, but, but yeah, but there are people out there that love the Employee of the Month award. There, there are people out there that want the car parking space, or they want the badge and the medal, or the pat on the back. So you have to recognize that people value different things at different stages of your life. When you're, when you're in your growth phase of your career, you're looking for money and status. 
when you hit your twilight years, you know, you're 40, 50 plus, you're looking for a, a more plateaued, safer, more dependable lifestyle where you have time for yourself. Joel, I want to go back to what you were saying before about privilege. I've experienced, um, just seeing them on video, I haven't actually run one myself, privilege walks and just the insights that people were getting around the level of privilege they had and a real appreciation and understanding of difference. So I'm just curious to hear more about your experience of helping people understand privilege and and gaining that appreciation. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, let's start with a, a word, intersectionality. You may have come across this. It was uh, coined in the late 80s by a black feminist called Kimberly Crenshaw. And what she identified was that at the time, the white feminists were kind of getting all the all the attention and black feminists or black women were being almost excluded. So the, the white women were pulling the drawbridge up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what she identified was that the, the more characteristics you have about yourself that deviate from the typical, that the more systems of oppression you're likely to face. So the less white you are, the less straight you are, the less male you are, the less Christian or, or non-religious you are, you know, or the less cisgender, if you're trans, all of these things compound. So a, a, a white straight man has more privilege than a black gay man who has who himself has more privilege mm-hmm. than a, a black gay woman. So all these systems of oppression compound. And what we have to do is recognize that when all these things come into play, that their privilege is therefore much less by all these compounding characteristics. So privilege itself is an unearned benefit or an unearned thing you have about you by how you're born, the upbringing, whether your parents were married, the access to education, whether you had to work from a young age, whether you were given things by your environment, by your parents. And and privilege can be very incremental. When people say, I'm a self-made person, often they're self-made because of very small micro-increment in advantage throughout their life. They didn't have to uh, go to work at the age of 16. They had, they had books when they were at school. They got the opportunity to go to university. They got the opportunity to go to a good university. And and university, they didn't have to work Saturday jobs to pay the way through university. And then when they, when they finished university, someone was able to offer them an apprenticeship or a job without them having to try too hard. All these little micro things that happen in your earlier life magnify when you're older it's a bit like a pension if you invest a lot early it's worth a lot more at the end and that that's also with privilege and it's very easy to not see your own privilege which is why you hear this expression sometimes check your privilege yeah take a long hard look in the mirror and think okay i'm white i'm middle class i talk with a native british accent I've had a reasonable education. I've got a great circle of friends. My parents are married. I'm married. I'm in a family unit. I've got a home. I've got money. And I don't have to fight for every penny I have. So those are my privileges. And by checking that, I then compare someone else who I'm talking to and say, well, actually, you're black. You've come from an environment where your parents weren't married. I now have to start understanding your lived experience, your perspective, and the challenges you have just to come to work. Now, if it's raining, I just jump in the car, drive to work. If it's raining, the other person has to get three buses. 
has to fight their way through the rain, has their umbrella turned inside out, they arrive five minutes late for work, looking stressed and wet and damp. The first thing I say is, oh, you're late. Actually, I've not thought about the challenge that they had to get there. If I say, are you okay? How's it going? You, you've had a bit of a struggle this morning. It's, you're okay? Do you need five minutes to get, gather your thoughts? Uh, take your time, you know, sit down when you're ready, sort of thing. So I, I haven't just jumped to a conclusion. My first reaction is you're late. That's a privilege. And I have the privilege of being there on time. So I think sometimes it's, it's understanding someone else's struggle to be them. And if you think about people in the workplace, the opportunities, uh, you know, I cast my mind back. I'm a great Friends fan. You know, you think about those, some of the episodes where Rachel had to uh, go out with the smokers to be part of the conversations. And often, if you're a woman, you have to try and force your way into the conversation with the men. Men will have conversations, they'll go to the bar, they'll play golf, and they'll network with each other, they'll tell jokes, they have in things. And as a woman, it's very hard to sometimes break into those things. So we have to understand that there's male privilege out there, and decisions often happen when a woman is quite rightly prioritizing family, prioritizing caring, uh, being the home administrator, doing the shopping, doing the cooking, the ironing and washing, and the man has more freedom in a traditional old way of, of gliding through life without the with, the with the privilege of having a wife at home. If the wife had a wife at home, then she would be able to have the same access to network and to develop her career. But often she doesn't because she has to look after her well, in, in this traditional old style of, of marriage, marriage relationship, which I know we're we're evolving away from it until the case in many relationships. Wow. I'm just thinking, you know, how a team might accelerate in their cohesion were they to sit down and have a discussion around privilege and really understand each other's backgrounds and challenges and just just listen, deeply, actively listen. Well, one of the sessions I run, I call it... Uh, conscious inclusion session where I and we can talk about what I mean by conscious inclusion in a sec but I show this video at YouTube which is um, produced by Accenture and it's called Inclusion Starts With An Eye it has a whole sequence of people holding up a sign that basically gives them a challenge you know, one, one a woman holds up a sign saying people think I only got promotion because I'm a woman and then someone else holds a sign up people think I, I'm less um, engaged with my, my role because I'm a mother and a man holds up a sign saying people expect me to be more engaged because I'm, I'm a father not a mother you know? so people are holding up all of these things that they have anxiety about or have they feel is, is impacting their work and, and what I say as part of this is you know, at the end of it I say well what would you write on your side what would you want to declare to the world and I say well how, how brave would you feel about sharing that with other people would you be scared to be that vulnerable? And then I say, well, wouldn't it be powerful if you all watched that video at work and then you all sat in a circle, wrote your sign up and started having a conversation about what makes it hard for you to come to work? What makes it hard for you to feel valued? What makes it hard for you to feel included? And then you're able to have that, that shared vulnerability where you can start talking about this thing. So, and, and everybody goes, wow, that would be powerful. But really challenging but wouldn't that be amazing if you do that in your workplace absolutely and actually that leads me on to ask you 
are there organizations out there who are doing this well? You know, I don't think you'd ever tick the box of have done that, achieve that. But are there, are, are there role models we can look to in business or do we still have a long way to go? The way I describe it is it, you know, inclusion is an infinite journey. We're, we're never going to get there. or we, or we are, It's always a journey. Wherever society evolves, people change, roles change. The mix is so infinite in possibilities that everybody is unique. So every scenario is going to be different. So this is this infinite journey. And I said, well, don't be daunted by the fact you never get to the end. From time to time, stop, look over your shoulder and see how far you've come. Not to, not to be complacent and say, wow, haven't we done a lot of things here? But to say, actually, we have achieved something. We've got more, more a long way to go, but let's learn from what we've got to. Let's not beat ourselves up. Let's say we're still on this journey. So when we talk about great companies, you know, we can name you know, the big four accounting firms. We can look at the big banks. We can look at the international companies. You know, I've met some people the other day at a, a DNI Leaders Forum, and there's some senior people from major global organizations, and they are passionate. They are doing things. They've got employee forums. They've got engagement. They've got engagement surveys. They're talking to their people. They're training their leaders. They're doing all the great things. You know, in the top 10 things you should do to be an inclusive company, they've got they're writing the book on this. Yet still, it doesn't always permeate right down to the far corners of the organization, come down to one one bit of culture in a team, one poor leader, one disruptive employee. Uh, I think we call them talented jerks or gifted jerks. You know, so those are the people in the organization that think they're, think they're too important to have to fit in. You know, they'll just be, yeah, be a jerk, basically, because they they're self-important. Um, we have these people disrupting. We have all these things going on, no matter who your organization is, you have to recognize that it's people and people are random. People have different ways of thinking and all the best will in the world. You can't get it right all the time. But what I would say is that there's still, if you look at the small, medium businesses and consider that, you know, certainly in the UK, was it 90% of people are employed by businesses of 10 employees or less, uh, a lot of micro businesses. And so these, these companies often don't have the time, the resources, or or will, or even awareness to invest in people in this way. So that's where it becomes a challenge, where the majority of people are actually employed by by organisations that aren't necessarily inclusive or don't have even that on their radar. And that's where the challenge is in in the small business, small medium business arena, to try and get that message out there to be to be less biased. And I, I mentioned earlier about conscious inclusion. And this is where I talk about uh, unconscious exclusion. So we talk about unconscious bias, but I'm talking about unconscious exclusion, which is, let's tell it as it is, we, we, we often exclude people by without re- without realising it, without thinking mm-hmm. about it. And I, I challenge people to start questioning, you know, check their privilege, question decisions, question thoughts. You see something and you have an opinion, you think, why did I think that? Is that is that a good thought? Am I being subjective? I'm just going, is it gut feel? Am I using my biases there? So getting people to be conscious about their exclusion, challenge themselves, get people used to having conversations at work. Yeah. So in your team, you get you get you get used to having conversations, yeah, where you would say to each other, let's let's, let's just do a quick review of what we're doing at the moment. We have a quick conversation and, 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 be, and be having a culture where you can actually challenge each other in a way that says, are we sure? How did you come to that conclusion? Is that is that a good idea? Uh, what if we did it differently? Maybe reframing things. And then by having these conscious exclusion conversations, we can then consciously include 
So what would it look like if we did it differently? What would it look like if we involved this person? What would it look like if we redesigned that product? Would it work for more people? And then, you know, you know, obviously, the, the destination is unconscious inclusion, where it just becomes part of our culture and the way we work, the way we talk. We start challenging each other in a very open, open way. No one's threatened. The leaders value it. And we have these conversations where everybody's constantly allowed to bring opinions and to bring, bring thoughts. And that way we get this diversity of thought, diversity of, of thinking in terms of product design, communication, where we work with customers. All those fantastic things that, we, that McKinsey say is, is the benefit of inclusion and diversity. Absolutely. And that they feel safe to do that. They feel safe to say that. Because I, um, I was listening to a, a podcast that you did uh, fairly recently, which I was pretty blown away by. And the focus was on, focus was on recruitment. And there were so many little examples that you dropped in where I was at that point of, unconscious incompetence and I actually you know and I run programs on unconscious bias and so going going back to that is that how can we as individuals and I think you've you've covered a lot of it but there's probably even more how how as individuals can we start to make the unseen seen just in our everyday lives I think you I think you gave some examples around um, disability as well can you speak more to that yeah, I mean, one of my favourite ones. One, 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 thing I, one thing I often say is, you know, when uh, we talk about disability, I often refer people to trains and the London Underground and even buses, where there's, as you get on a train or the underground, there's always a seat that's marked as a seat for someone who's less abled, someone who maybe is infirm, maybe someone who's pregnant, or it's basically a seat for someone who needs it. And I, I often sit in the underground or on the train looking at who sits in those seats. And I, I observe often it's a busy train. People will just get on the train. They'll just sit down without thinking about it. You know, it's a free seat. No one else is sitting in it. I'll take it. And to me, what that says is they exert their privilege. Why? They're not even thinking about someone who may need it more. And if you challenge them on it, they'll often say, well, if someone wants it, they'll ask and I'll move. But then they said putting the onus back on somebody to stand up and have the courage to challenge them. Yeah, yeah. And, and not everybody wants to have that, that, that confrontational conversation. So when we talk about those, those sort of examples, we can, I became self-aware of that when I, I traveled the underground with a friend of mine who is a, a wheelchair user. And walking around London, getting on buses, getting on the underground, in and out of offices, with this person showed me how her daily life has impacted by being a wheelchair user and how the world isn't designed for her. Now, this is where we talk about the social model of disability versus the medical model. The, the, the world makes her disabled. She is not disabled. She's disabled by the world. So we so think about how we fix things like that. And I think as, as I, this is what I do, is I go out my way to learn about other people. I, I Not in some creepy, stalky way, uh, I, 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 rather than, you know, we talked about inclusion earlier about a manager's door being open and nobody walks in. I, it's always very well said, well, you can come and drink in my pub, we'll have a chat. Well, actually, I want to go and drink in your pub. I want to know about you. I want to find out about you. And I can do that through YouTubes. I can do that through watching documentaries on channels like Channel 4 or SBS in, the, in, the, in Australia, where you, you end up with these challenging things that are maybe not normal. And when you watch these things, you think, well, I don't get that. 
well, okay, not getting it is, is, a, is a trigger in your head to say, actually, if I don't get it, I need to find out more about it. And I may not agree, I may not understand, but I kind of have a, a better frame of reference now. Uh, and I think it's, it's up to us all to try and enrich ourselves. I encourage um, companies to set up um, some sort of voluntary scheme where each employee is allowed a day a month or two days a month to do volunteering in the community. Because if they were to volunteer in a project, uh, whether that's for people with disabilities, people with illnesses, or a community project, or building something, a beach clear-up, a, a clear-up of plastic waste, they'll start to meet different people. They'll start to have an enriched experience in their own personality. And they'll start to have this understanding of, of, of the world around them rather than just their head down, get into work, earn the money, go home. And, I, and that's kind of the approach I take is to, is to be curious, be curious and, and put effort into my own personal enrichment and development in that way. Oh, that's such a good point. Just up the road from where I live, there's a, a Baha'i temple. Looks beautiful. I've never been inside it. So I reckon I'm going to go there this weekend. Sounds fantastic. I mean, let me give you another example. I was at a conference recently, and the conference organiser had booked a, two graffiti artists, and they set up this graffiti wall, and they're inviting the delegates to spray a, a section of it. So by the end of the, the two-day conference, this 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 wall was, was sprayed and completed in different colours, and everyone had they used it as their, their company logo, and they used it on the material. But it was kind of like the delegates created it. And I was during the day, I went over and chatted to the graffiti artists and said. Tell me about yourself. This is fantastic. I mean, and we had this half an hour, 45-minute conversation with the two guys. I learned so much about them, how they, they used to live in the in the underground graffiti world, and then they found it got a bit risky. They kept getting arrested for spraying on walls and train carriages and things. And so they legitimized themselves, and they set up this business to do corporate events and to train people how to, how to do graffiti and, and it started telling me all about how it works and how you tag and how you can overspray and how you use techniques. So I spent 45 minutes learning how to be a graffiti artist. And at the end of the day, I was on a panel and I threw it out to the audience and I said to you, yeah. I said to the whole audience, has anybody had a chat with the graffiti guys? And there was a blank silence, not one person. I said, why didn't we have a chat? Was it because they looked a bit rough? Looked a bit, it didn't, they weren't like you? Didn't think they were important? Didn't think they were part of the day? And everyone kind of went, well, we just didn't. So I, I say, well, actually, when you go to an event, talk to the person who's not obvious. Spend time talking to the, maybe the waitress, but talk to the person who takes your coat. Smile at them, ask them a question, involve them. And I think that's kind of being a great human, I think not just treating somebody who takes your coat as the hired help. Say, hey, how are you doing? Here's my coat. How was your day so far? Yeah, not long to not long to knocking off time. Have you got having a great evening tonight? Just that bit of conversation. And start engaging yourself in conversation with people you never would talk to. And that allows you to live, understand other people's lived experiences. Uh, and then don't be afraid to talk to people who you consider more privileged. You know, we say, oh, I couldn't talk to them. They're far too senior, yeah. But get, if you get in the habit of talking to anybody, you, you lose your, your inhibitions to talk to somebody who is you know, a figure of authority. Well, <laughs> I think you've just, um, I think you just rounded up our conversation beautifully with throwing down the gauntlet to us, and and I, I, I love that. I, and I've forgotten that I'd sort of stopped doing that as much um like you know because I live in Sydney I get the bus everywhere 
And I'd say probably 95% of people say thank you to the bus driver. And it's just, and, and having been in hospitality myself and having washed dishes and having having waited on tables, gosh, there were so few people that actually engaged in conversation with me. Joe, it's just been, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I will put the details of, of your website and everything on the show notes. Are you happy for people to connect with you on LinkedIn? Yeah, sure. LinkedIn is great. Um, Joe Lockwood, uh, search me, Joanne Lockwood or Joe Lockwood. If you Google my name, I'm quite prolific on the first five or six pages. Uh, my website's tchangehappen.co.uk. And if you want to, on my website, there's a link to all the podcasts and video chats I've done, magazine articles, blogs. So if you want to, if you want to watch me in person or see some of the talks I've given, they're all on my website. I think you're doing amazing work, Joe. And that the one thing that keeps coming back to me from this conversation is I feel included. And I actually have a little confession to make. I have a, in the spirit of raw authenticity, I have a confession to make to our listeners in that this wonderful, wonderful Joanne um, has just engaged with me in a second hour of conversation because on Tuesday, we had a very different but equally fabulous conversation, which I didn't record. And I just, my expletives at the end of it were just horrendous. And in your graciousness and your acceptance and your inclusion, you said, that's okay, let's do it all again. So, Joe, you're a bloody star. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, this, I mean, this is what I do. I, I love... I love talking, not just, hopefully I don't talk about myself. Hopefully I talk about things that people can take away and do for themselves. Hopefully I like to enlighten, turn some lights on in people's heads. So the fact that we spoke for an hour the other day, for me, it was inspiring, invigorating uh, and motivating for me as well. So no, I, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. I mean, we covered different things and in a different way, but it was it's just fantastic as well. So no, it's, it's absolutely a pleasure. And uh Anytime you're passing, happy to have a chat and a coffee with you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Joe. Go well, and let's see what happens in the election. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. And you. See you soon.